Name me one, name me one point where Sam Weber makes an ironic, critical remark on Derrida. Name me one point where Avital Ronel does it. Name me one point where Rodolphe Gasset does it. So why, why are we, why is my attached, why am I dogmatically attached to Lacan? And it's not, why did you think this is this about belief? I am a Lacanian. I mean, you are knocking on the open door here. I mean, you know, you don't have to prove through some deconstructive analysis, oh, but he's a Lacanian. I am a card-carrying Lacanian. doing this and working really well for us is splitting these into two episodes just so it doesn't get too long for people to listen to all at once um so once we get somewhere near like the hour mark or so um i'll try and sort of push us to find like some you know like pausing downwinding and then we'll just do a new set of intros they'll be you know, joining us again as chase and then we can just jump straight back in um moving on to the next very session. funny there's something beautifully lacanian about the idea of creating this like fantasy where we're actually meeting twice but i, I appreciate it if you want to mention that during the second intro that you want to specify that you this is in fact still the first recording and you're not meeting with us again um, i don't want fine. to sound too much like slavo zizek so maybe I won't, but... <laughs> well we do cold opens and i've already decided i'm using a clip for him for the cold open for this because like you have to oh really oh, that's i mean what else what else am i going to use have to oh no that's perfect i mean he's um, yeah, I mean, in a way, he is my my was my entry point into this. Right. I mean, he he's like it's like how on Twitter, how you know, basically all of our jokes come from 4chan, directly or indirectly. However long it takes, like all of the memes, all of, like the terminology, you know, oh, all no, things yeah. that are more or less. And like the more I talk to people, the more I realize like most of us were on 4chan at some point. But it's one of the things where it's like, yes. You, you got to know someone before it's like okay to ask them out. Like Zizek, I don't want to go straight and be like, so do you watch? Have you watched Zizek videos? Because like. That says a lot of things, but like once you know them, once you know they're cool, you can be like so. Well, I think that's that's very funny because um, one of my sources of frustration early in my Twitter usage, less so now, was feeling as if everything was like six months delayed from mm-hmm. other platforms with which I was familiar, and I I just I didn't know how to quite like I didn't have the normie language at that like that didn't exist right. for me. So okay, so do you want do you want to jump into this before we go um, too far? I'm ready right. whenever. Welcome to Wayward. This is episode twenty seven. I'm Mark. I'm Zeb. And joining us tonight, we have our friend Chase Paduzniak. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being on. This is um one I've actually basically been wanting to do this episode more or less since we started. I just didn't know how to do it. Um, I, um, it started out with the idea of looking at the, um, the similarities between um, confession and uh, psychotherapy. And I figured if I was going to have to like lead this discussion, I would, should really prepare myself. So I was changing jobs I, at my old library. I just got every book on Young I could and used the scanner to scan all of them and just save PDFs to my computer to read slowly. Um, but then, you know, a few months ago, uh, Chase went on a posting spree on Twitter of just posting screenshots mm-hmm. of um, Lacan. And so I was like, oh, this would be a lot easier. So we had someone who knows what they're talking about. So I'm really ha- really excited to have you here. This is, I think, going to be really, really kind of up our alley. So before we dive into 
psychotherapy and religion. Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, where you come from, what you do? Yeah, happily. I mean, I think it's uh, might be an, an overestimation to say I know what I'm talking about, but we, we'll see as we go along. We can cut that out. <laughs> um, but my name is Chase Paduzniak. I'm from Garwood, New Jersey. I'm currently a graduate student at Princeton University in the English department where I work on medieval mystics and critical theory. So things like psychoanalysis, people like Hegel and Marx. I also have a blog on Pathios Catholic. I'm on Twitter too much. Aren't we all? <laughs> so... Yeah, it was uh, sort of your interest in psychotherapy that kind of um, drew my attention and got me thinking that um, you'd like to talk to us about this. Mm. So as we were talking, basically, um, we split this into kind of three like major um, major figures in um, early psychoanalysis and various offshoots with uh, Sigmund Freud, Carl Jung, and Jacques Lacan. You know, basically, uh, Jung kind of has this very dramatic breakup with Freud, he founds his own school of what he called um, analytic psychology, as opposed to Freud and Lacan's psychoanalysis. Um, and there are differences between the two. So maybe to start, can you just explain to us, um, as short as you can, an explanation of Freud and Lacan's psychoanalysis, how they view sort of the, the human psyche, what that is to them, um, and what the purpose of uh, psychoanalysis is in their, in their view? Yeah, of course. Uh, I think psychoanalysis is two things. It's both a theory of how the mind or the psyche works, and it's also a clinical practice, right? So I think at this point, we've actually very much isolated those two things. Academically, we talk about the theory, and in you know clinical practice, we think about the talking cure, the couch, things like that. Um, now, Lacan thought he was just developing Freud, so in a way, it's kind of difficult to talk about them separately. Mm-hmm. But um, I think the most important thing to keep in mind with someone like Freud is he thinks of the psyche as being something that's scientifically understandable um, in a way that it wasn't wasn't previously the case. So he's coming up in a time when um, the law of the conservation of energy has just been discovered in physics. And so he comes to see the mind as obeying the same laws, having what he calls cathectic energy. So mental energy that has to be preserved. So he says, well, where does it go if it's, you know, if there are thoughts we have that don't seem to be our own, things like that. And so he discovers what he calls the unconscious. And I think that's usually considered sort of the demarcating uh, element of what we think of as psychoanalysis is the idea that we as subjects are not just our conscious selves. We're not Cartesian egos. We're a lot more complicated. And there's a lot more to say about that. But I think that's sort of the biggest insight when we think about something like psychoanalysis. Right. So when you say we're not just our conscious selves, so there's this this unconscious. And I know a lot of people, they get started with the idea of the the id, the ego, and the superego, which I know even Freud kind of moved away from later in his in his work or, you know, elaborate on, shifted away from. But can you basically explain what the unconscious in is in psychoanalytic terms? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's interesting that it, it took Freud, I think, till 1923 to even start talking about the, you know, superego, the ego, and the id. The easiest way to think about this might just be, you know, in, in German, for Freud, the ego is the ich, is the I. So that element is just intended to mean the conscious subject, who I think I am, the thoughts I have, all that sort of stuff. The superego is the uberish, the thing above me. And um, that is also unconscious. So in other words, that's not something that we think about ourselves. It's mm-hmm. a set of norms or rules that, you know, tell us how to act. The thing that stands above. And then the last thing, the id, you know, the s, the it, is some motive force that leads us towards often destructive behaviors. Um, Freud will emphasize particularly sexuality and destructiveness in talking about the id. But it doesn't just have to be that. Um, there are an infinite number of drives, theoretically. So it's just all of this stuff 
that seems to almost happen to us, you could say. Um, that, you know, we don't fully understand why we do it. And Freud is perhaps the first person to theorize that as its own portion of the human psyche, as opposed to chalking it up to, say, fortune, mm-hmm. as a lot of medievals would do. Is the superego anything more than or different from what a Christian would call the conscience? Um, well, it, I, I suppose it's a kind of connotative as opposed to denotative difference. So it isn't different insofar as its job is just to tell us what's right or what's wrong. But unlike, say, Christian conscience, for Freud, it can have positive or negative effects. Um, and so it's sort of analytically, the question is, how have the norms you've internalized allowed you to um, live in society? Has it led you to develop neuroses that are actually more damaging than if you didn't live by those norms? Um, and so it it doesn't quite signify something as positive as it would in Christianity. It's a little more nebulous. I think if, if I remember at least like one of the, the early examples I remember learning, um, like the the father figure is kind of like one of the par excellence sort of develop, helping develop the super ego. So like, you know, you're a kid and you really want something, but you know that if you steal the cookie or if you do, you do this thing, then your dad's going to come over and smack you. And so the fear of doing that is what actually stops you from, you know, pursuing, pursuing that desire. And over time, you kind of internalize all those, all those impulses of uh, external, um, sort of normative figures telling you do this, don't do that. And you internalize all that. And that's how your super ego develops. Is that basically, am I remembering that more or less right? I mean, in, in, in terms of Freud, that's definitely true. Although he also, um, he has a, a more social conception as well. That is to say, I know there tends to be an association with Jung as thinking more collectively or socially than Freud does. But um, Freud definitely recognizes that we come up in civilizations or societies and that those exert a pretty big influence on how we perceive ourselves and the parts of ourselves we don't perceive. So I mean, he has a book called Civilization, It's Discontents. And that book is largely about a civilized subject, like what it means for us to consider ourselves civilized and the ways in which repression and, uh, you know, all the other projection, all the, all of those things factor into what it means to be civilized, the ways in which it's unbalanced, the ways in which it's balanced, what we gain, what we lose, that sort of thing. And so when someone goes to, as far as like the actual, um, practicing side of psychoanalysis when someone goes to a psychoanalyst what is it like what is the what is the goal of the psychoanalytic sessions yeah well that varies very much on the school we're talking about which is sort of part of the problem um the biggest school to come out of freud's initial work uh lacan would very derisively call ego psychology um and that, that actually does almost like what we might think of regular clinical therapy as doing. So its job is actually just to strengthen the ego. Mm-hmm. The ego needs to learn how to not give into the id and to learn how to balance itself against the superego. So the idea is that you become more conscious of the rules that are informing your, your uh, superego. You become more conscious of the kind of disastrous drives that you have, um, anything that you might want that might be considered bad, and it allows you to control it. And in a way, I mean that, I think for the for the public is probably the most readily understandable as being the goal. And Lacan sort of wants to blow that out of the water. But I would say in some ways that's been the biggest, especially in the Anglo-American world, the way in which it's been received, the most mm-hmm. uh, largest way in which it's been received. And if, uh, if Freud was the first person to think of himself as a scientist of the psyche, I know he is an atheist or was an atheist. What did he think the psyche was? Like, 
Was it a substance? Did he was he a physicalist yeah. of the mind? What do you think he was studying, really? <laughs> well, it's yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, my understanding is that he sort of thought we might be able to figure it out. So, I mean, if if listeners have ever listened to Partially Examined Life, they do. They have a Freud episode on dreams, and I think it's Wes spends a lot of time talking about. Well, we think we've identified, you know, where this is in the brain and where this is in the brain. <laughs> uh-huh. So you can definitely take that tack if you want to. Um, but I think the easier way to understand it is that he's in 19th century Vienna. Um, you know, it's a big period for scientific growth. He studies with several very important. Um, he actually begins his career studying physiology. So he starts off not even doing psychic phenomena, per se. Um, and he says, well, you know, there's all these new physical discoveries taking place in things like chemistry and physics. And he says, well, why wouldn't this apply to the way that the human brain works? So he basically conceives of the brain as containing something like energy, um, something like the electrical currents we think move through the brain today, and says, well, those have to be displaced. They can't be destroyed. So we need a theory of displacement. And that's where the unconscious comes from. Hmm. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so by, by contrast, uh, one of his most famous slash notorious students was Carl Jung, um, who I find very interesting as a figure. I don't know if I want to commit to saying I believe anything he says. I just find it very interesting and informative. Some of the structures he sets up for ways of seeing um, the unconscious and the human psyche sort of contrary to someone like Freud. So, I mean, one, one of the major differences is that like Jung from the beginning was more or less unapologetically anti-scientific in this regard mm. that, they're, they're, that the the human psyche was not something that could be understood by material science um in the way that freud believed eventually you know we would be able to discover with science all of the the workings of the unconscious young saw it as kind of this in many ways almost uncontrollable and unknowable unknowable force that motivates us even more than our our conscious his other sort of big I think shift that um, that Chase alluded to was um, his idea of the collective unconscious. Um, so this is where you know accusations of him being kind of new agey and all that are maybe <laughs> on the fairer side. But I think it is actually interesting and informative. And even if it seems a whacked out theory to me, I'd actually I actually think that you know it does hold up under some investigation as far as the actual um, ways that you know he sees it carrying out in humans. So the idea being that basically um, we share some degree of of a past of a un- unrecognized human nature between us in our in our unconscious in our unconsciousnesses unconsciousnesses there we go uh you know so even across even across cultures there is something um something shared in the unconscious between um between all people and sort of one of the ways that he sees evidence for this is in what he calls the archetypes mm-hmm. so he says that basically um you can imagine the, the the collective unconscious is like the lowest, most unknowable strata of your psyche. And then you have, you know, your personal unconscious and you have some other levels. And then eventually you have what you're actually conscious of, you know, like how you see, how you interact with the world, that kind of thing. And basically all that collective unconscious, like that sort of like primordial psychic stuff for humanity is brought into your conscious and it's shaped in these archetypes. It's, these are archetypes that are shared between between people. Um, so examples he will always give is like the mother, you know, the mother is this, um, it's not just, you know, in the most literal sense of like the person that like creates you, births you, takes care of you, but like there is, there is an entire part of your existence and your reality and your psyche that is shaped on your relationship with this mother figure. So not even just your mother, but mothers in society, you know, in the example of religion with the mother Mary, like what that means to say that she is our mother. Like that means something much more to us than just 
she is like literally, you know, the person who gave birth to us. These that these archetypes are a way that we are able to actually experience and under healthy circumstances, more or less control our encounter with the collective unconscious. So in his mind, um, basically how neuroses rise up, you know, Freud really wanted to, you know, center most neuroses on infantile sexual experiences. So you're running around scratching yourself and your parents are like, don't do that. And like that first fear of there are things that you're not supposed to do. There are things you should be ashamed of. Like that's the root in my understanding of most of like, you know, Freud's um, analysis of neurosis and being, you know, unable to actually like reconcile that there are, you know, bad desires and either that, that kind of thing. Um, Young blows it wide open to basically all kinds of like, you know, hopes and anxieties and fears and all these kinds of things that kind of basically motivate and drive people as a whole. The problem being is that in in the modern world, when we try to become more rational, modern ways of thinking, modern ways of living, all this technology has made it harder for us to actually recognize our unconscious bubbling up. So it happens in these very uncontrolled ways that we don't really understand. We don't know how to deal with it. And the result of not know, of not recognizing that that's the experience from our collective unconscious, he says, is the foundation of neuroses. So basically, his analytic psychology, the idea was to make the, the patient recognize that they were a whole, so that there's a lot more to them going on than they realize. And the reason that, you know, they have, you know, whatever the particular neuroses might be, is to recognize that... Um, it is an internal thing that basically it's a, a part of them essentially and learning to recognize that, you know, unrecognized and distasteful part of themselves and loving themselves in that sense um, is the, the goal of analytic psychology. And like, I recognize that that sounds really kind of lame and new agey, but then like when you read his writing, I, he has um, one of my favorite lines from him. I'll see if I can actually just pull up the exact quote that I'd saved. Um, one of the best ones was this article. Um, I think it was a chapter from one of his books called Psychotherapists or the Clergy. Um, he says, The acceptance of oneself is the essence of the moral problem and the epitome of a whole outlook upon life. That I feed the hungry, that I forgive an insult, that I love my enemy in the name of Christ. These are all undoubtedly great virtues. What I do unto the least of my brethren, that I do unto Christ. But what if I should discover that the least amongst them all the poorest of all the beggars, the most impudent of all the offenders, the very enemy of him, the very enemy himself, that these are all within me and that I myself stand in need of the alms of my own kindness, that I myself am the enemy who must be loved. What then? As a rule, the Christian's attitude is then reversed. There's no longer the question of love or long suffering. We say to the brother within us, Raka, and condemn enraged against ourselves. We hide it from the world. We refuse to admit ever having met this least among the lowly in ourselves. And had it been God himself who drew near to us in this despicable form, we would have denied him a thousand times before a single cock had crowed. So that's kind of what got me turned on to, to Young's take on, um, sort of, or at least you know how religion has kind of informed his, his view of the, the psyche. And the, the question of what if you were to discover that the least of these was actually you and learning how to love that image of Christ when it's not, you know, we're not able to project that despicable but lovable other on someone else, but recognizing that the the least the least of the least among you is actually an unrecognized part of yourself. And that is his that is the mission of his analytic psychology. That I think is what makes um his encounter with with religion particularly interesting. Yeah. 
I, I, I'm interested, especially in thinking about um, how the goal of that sounds like it ends up being very similar to what it is in, say, Freuder Lacan, but that the notion of a whole self would be um, meaningless for someone like Lacan. So it's weird to me that they can stem from this similar tradition, desire what seems like the same thing, but use totally opposite language. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know a ton about, I don't know as, quite as much about Jung, but I, I would be interested, I mean, what, what exactly do you think, like, the, the whole self, I mean, what does that suggest to you? Because I'm not... Uh, well, you know, at, le- at least to Jung, the idea of the whole self is um, recognizing, embracing what he called your shadow. Mm-hmm. So there's the, um, there's, your, there's your unconscious. So there's the, you know, both the collective and your personal unconscious. And these are formed by what he called, what he referred to as complexes. Um, so things like the archetypes would basically ha- all your experiences with these archetypes would form together and basically be a, a whole greater than their parts. So an example with like mothers, um, you know, if you say had like a very good relationship with your mother, then when you think of like the mother Mary, um, then it's likely that, you know, your experiences with your mother are reflected in your relationship with mother mary mother of god um conversely if you you know had a a difficult or a distant relationship with your own mother then that is going to also shape your relationship with the virgin mary and not necessarily in a bad way the idea being that if you can you know see yourself as a whole um and understand how these complexes work within you um you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but the but basically understanding that um, because of all of your past experiences, the way that you encounter these archetypes, like the mother, the wise old man, um, even things like water or, you know, the idea of like water experiencing something like that, um, all of those, the way that you experience those things are going to be shaped on not just this collective unconscious, but also the past of your personal experiences in ways that you don't initially recognize um, when you first encounter these things. So I think, you know, so basically becoming a whole, a whole person is recognizing that these things are all, all a part of you. Um, and so maybe where you could say that, um, young, you know, one of Young's great limitations we can maybe say is that in the case of like, where, you know, if you do have like a serious moral failing, he is, at least from what I read of him, pretty unclear about how to rectify, um, like if you're, if you're prone to like violent outbursts. And the focus on being like, okay, we also need to not do greater harm to other people. Like recognizing that this is just that there, this is a part of you. Recognizing how it impacts not just like the obvious things when like you flip out and punch someone at the bar, <laughs> but like how you tend to like interact with the people on a day to day basis. How maybe you keep people at arm's length because like you know that you know given the opportunity you are prone to these sorts of things. And recognizing how this plays a role in the, you know all of your all of your um, your behavior. Um, so we can say, I mean, like, not being able to just be like, all right, but we also need to work on, like, the moral depravity of uncontrolled violence. Like, that we could say is, you know, maybe a limitation, at least in what I know of of Jung's theory. But basically, his idea of the whole self is that you encounter your shadow and recognize it. Um, and so the shadow is all the parts of your unconscious that you don't want, that you don't want to see as part of you. So, like, one of the the classic examples that he uses is with the the animus and the anima. So this is the the male and female parts of of your psyche. Everyone has both male and female parts of their psyches, but he basically said like it's easy to recognize like all right, 
I'm male, I identify as male, I experience the world as male. Um, so I think of myself as male. So if I ever feel, you know, feelings that like to me register as female, I'm much less likely to recognize that, that, that I'm feeling that. Um, so like one of his classic examples, this is where we get the term projection. Like when you say, oh, you're projecting your own feelings. And so like the classic example that I hear I think is really helpful is like if you know any guy who like says that like all of his ex-girlfriends are crazy. And so you're like, okay, but then you also see how he's like always getting in fights with everyone. He's always super sensitive to everything, but because he is in some very like juvenile sort of broish sense where he thinks that like men are calm and rational and women are flighty and emotional when he feels emotions, he can't recognize that in himself. And so what instead he does is he pushes that all else. He's, you know, he feels that there's a lot of emotions going on around here. So he externalizes it on other people. So that's that's projection. And basically the goal of um, the analytic psychology there would be for him to recognize that, okay, yes, like whether or not this is, you know, whether or not it's like the feminine part of you, whatever else it is, this is a part of you and you have to embrace that and accept that. And so that's the goal of analytic psychology is to recognize um, these unrecognized parts of yourself and to love and embrace them. The passage you read was beautiful in a way of that reconciliation and seeing yourself as the enemy to be loved in Christian terms or as the least of of these. But it also sounded like it could be taken in the direction of um, sort of banal. I'm okay. You're okay. Right. And <laughs> well, if I have trouble with overconsumption or with um, sexual licentiousness or something, Actually, I don't have trouble with that. That's fine. That's just who I am, and that's how God made me, and I'm, I'm going to give myself license to just be how I am and accept that instead of trying to correct mm-hmm. it. So does Jung have a way of avoiding that way of that, that goal leading to that sort of uh, bad end? Not explicitly, I don't think. Um, I mean, basically, he saw his goal was to make um, – he, he tried to, I think, be pretty – um, agnostic when he came to his patients and what they wanted and what he thought they should do. Um, and this is really important because this is actually where the uh, the Myers Briggs thing comes in in a minute. Um, so basically, he didn't think it was his place to tell his patients, you know, well, you need to, you know, control your gluttony, um, you need to rein in, you know, your lust, your licentiousness. He might say, you know, he might talk to you about why you feel the need to constantly go out, say, and sleep with new people um, and try and work on what is it in your, what is it in your psyche that drives you towards this, this particular behavior? I mean, is it something as simple as, you know, just physical pleasure or is it the fact that, you know, it's someone new every time? Is there some, you know, connection to experiences in the past, to anxieties, um, to needing to be proved that, you know, you are desirable, what, you know, things like that. Once he had, basically, I mean, his philosophy is if the if the patient feels whole, that's as much as he can do. Um, one of his big problems with Freud is that he thought that Freud tried to make all the patients like him. Um, <laughs> so very famously, this so this is where the Myers Briggs thing um, comes in. So originally with the Jungian um, Jungian types, he had come up with this um, way of like dividing various parts of um, the psyche and basically you know human temperament. Um, so like introvert, extrovert is one of the very famous ones. Because um, basically what he saw was in Freud's work, Freud treated introversion as a disorder. 
and that for someone to be truly fixed with their neuroses, they needed to be extroverted. And so Jung wrote this book actually with people like Freud as the intended audience. So it was originally actually a an analysis designed for the um, the therapists, the analyzers rather than the analyzans. Um, and to basically help you recognize things about yourself. So when a patient comes and tells you something like, you know, I always get this crushing anxiety when I go to like these giant concerts, you know, Freud would be, you know, Freud would look to see, you know, what was the root of our problem because you should be enjoying like the energy of the crowd, for example. And I know this is a very simplistic example, um, but the, the goal of Jung was also to help the, the analyzer break down their biases and their way of saying, not just to um, try and reshape the, the patient in the mold of the therapist. So Jung always very much believed that essentially the um, analytic psychology was more or less a, a two-way a two-way street. And he didn't think that anyone who had not more or less encountered their own and basically embraced their own shadow and become sort of more or less this psychically whole person could make a very effective therapist. Because there would be things that they, without realizing they would be revolted by certain things. So if they were, you know, a great introvert, if someone came to them and talked about how much they loved going to parties and meeting new people, they might, you know, unconsciously be like, okay, well, that's part of the, they, they would identify that as part of, as part of the problem. Mm-hmm. So what was later turned into the, the Myers-Briggs thing was originally a method that Jung developed for the, the doctors to recognize certain tendencies in themselves um, and how to address that when patients came to them and how to actually, you know, recognize that their patients might have, you know, different, um, different approaches in their psyche, different ways that they respond to, um, to situations. Well, my question is, are those types constructed? In other words, does he think that being an extrovert and introvert is a product of collective and personal unconscious experience? Or are these in some way essential? Um, can we cross them by overcoming our neuroses? Is that something subject to analysis? So I don't i mean i never have actually read the book where he first developed this i'm just familiar with um the familiar familiar with it in general based on his other work i would be inclined to say that his basically approach would be that this is not this is not innate but it is the state of humanity right now that the, the for example the introvert extrovert division is a functioning state at least you know in his um in his you know like early 20th century european world that dividing people roughly between introverts and extroverts was a meaningful a meaningful category he actually so he believed that um on the scientific side um he actually did believe that the psyche um evolved just like the rest of the the human body so he believed that just the way that the that you know the the you know, human body evolved over time, that the human psyche has and continues to evolve over time. So what might be, you know, more or less a reality for us now, um, as you know, time goes by, as the psyche continues to evolve, as that collective unconscious continues to develop, those like set categories might change would be what I would imagine would be his his stance on that. Well, I meant it more in the personal sense than in the sense of the categorizations themselves, meaning like if the therapist is an extrovert, is something like extroversion subject to analysis in order to like balance it in some way or something like that? 
I mean, I, I would say he doesn't think it's something that needs balance. So he, he doesn't he doesn't want you to think that you need to be you know part introvert, part extrovert. You just more or less need to know where you know your psyche tends to. So when someone tells you about where their psyche tends them, um, so he he wanted to make it clear that something like the introvert extrovert thing is more or less a, a morally and psychically neutral stance. Yeah, you know where Freud thought that introverts were neurotic fundamentally. Mm-hmm. Young wanted to say that, you know, this, this is not, you know, this is nothing to do with a healthy psyche. Um, these are just tendencies in, in people. Uh, I guess Does that makes more sense. No, yeah, that makes uh, perfect sense. I, I think I just might be more secretly Freudian than I had realized until now. So <laughs> that, see that that's the purpose of these sessions. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm interested in the, the shadow talking about that more. That to me is, if not the most interesting, maybe the most useful idea that I've seen in uh, Jung. And the shadow, if, um, if I understand it correctly, is a product of the formation of your, sort of like your public self. They, it's composed of all the things that you suppress, either mm-hmm. consciously or unconsciously, in the development of the way you present yourself, both to yourself, the way you want to think of yourself, and the way you want others to see you and think of you. Is that basically right i think that's basically right so um so uh young had this idea of the persona which is your your publicly constructed who you are um and it's very much a callback to um what we talked about last week with sergio and the luchadorists with their their masks um so because persona is just the latin it's the mask yeah um and so basically in the same way that you know actors put on a mask and it, you know, they become the the happy character, the sad character, the whatever. He basically, Young's idea was that um, as we go out into society, um, we basically take on a persona, and it's often going to be based on things like the archetypes. So, like, you know, if we, you know, see like, you know, great brave warriors that we admire, we try to take on this like warrior persona based on this. Um, and which, but that means that yes, then we have to reject all the things about ourselves that doesn't that doesn't match up with that, that persona, how we want to be seen by society. And so he says, the problem is, is that by saying, okay, that's not who I am, that doesn't make it magically go away from your psyche. And that doesn't even stop it from affecting how you behave and experience things. Um, and so the shadow is basically where that lurks um, unconsciously. And so, you know, young wide distress, these aren't necessarily bad things. Um, you know, an example of the warrior being, you know, like, Maybe being, you know, tender and sensitive under certain circumstances is a, is a good thing, you know, but just it's not part of like your your warrior persona. Um, or you might want to be seen as kind of like this, like, you know, you know, dark and mysterious person. And everyone knows deep down you're kind of this cuddly teddy bear. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, people might actually recognize your it's I think even in many cases, Young would argue that, like, it's much easier for other people to see your shadow. Yeah. Um, because your shadow is the parts of yourself that you really don't want to acknowledge are there, even if they're the good parts of you. Um, so he says the important process of analytic psychology is recognizing, recognizing, and and for him embracing, embracing that shadow. I don't know if you guys did you ever read the um, the Ursula K. Le Guin Earthsea books, like the Wizard of Earthsea and all those? No, no. So those are like really famous, like nineteen sixties fantasy books. Um, I think the first time like she would kind of like. I think it was maybe hedging it a little bit about whether or not like she got the idea from young, but like, if you want to read like 
a Jungian fantasy book. The fir- the wi- Wizard of Mercy is the first book, and it is literally like basically the the young wizard apprentice more or less goes through the Jungian analytic psychological process as his <laughs> right here. Like he he fights his shadow. Um, and ultimately, spoiler alert, so everyone mute this if you want to read the book and don't want the spoiler. Basically, the what he has to realize is that he defeats the shadow by calling it by his own name and recognizing that it's a part of him. Um, mm. And this this is how he's able to overcome what seemed like an undefeatable undefeatable monster. Um, so for for young, the shadow is what you don't you don't recognize as part of yourself, but still has an influence, still has an influence on you. Mm-hmm. And so, what is the goal? I mean, first, I w- would suppose is to uncover it and to see it, see what it is and what it is what it is constituted as. But then, do you try to reincorporate it and start to express those suppressed aspects of yourself, or is it merely knowing that it's there um, that's therapeutic? I would say it's more knowing that it's there. And so basically, and so when um, it's having an impact on you. Um, so in the example of like the guy who like thinks all of his exes are crazy, they realize like he, he has, he has emotions sometimes. And so like when he starts to feel this kind of, when he starts to feel like that argument with someone bubbling up, realizing that it's not, it's not just the other person. The other person might not even be involved at all, but like th- this is something about him that, pushes him into these argumentative circumstances. That's not just that all the women of the world have it out for him um, and are crazy, but like that it's actually that it's a part of him that is prone to overreacting to intentionally, you know, reading people's words with the worst intention, um, whatever, whatever else it might be. And so that basically recognizing that part of you, then when you are in these circumstances where normally you would experience these neuroses, and you're wondering, you know, why you feel this way, then you can be like, okay, because I tend to whatever. Mm-hmm. The, the goal of it was, uh, so you had to talk about this process of individuation where you become a, a self and a whole self being the, the ultimate hopeful goal that many of us fail to reach. Um, and he found very few good examples of a, of a true whole self. Um, he did find Christ in the New Testament as a very compelling um, example of the the perfectly whole self. Um, although he really struggled with uh, the temptation in the the, um, the temptations in the desert um, when Satan comes to tempt Christ, because basically, I mean, that's literally Christ's shadow coming and mocking him. Um, so that was a hard one for for young, but he he wrote some very interesting things about about how he saw that. Um, but a more, I think a more helpful example would be um, the agony in the garden, where Christ recognizes that um, he is scared, um, that he even in in a that there is even a part of him that doesn't want this to happen, even though he you know is God and is perfectly accepting of God's and because he says you know your will be done. Um, but he's able to also recognize this in himself, this fear and trepidation about what's about to happen. Mm-hmm. I, I'm interested in asking sort of along these lines. Uh, and I, I apologize if I'm, if I'm backing it up here, but why the archetypes? Like I'm, I'm interested in the idea of containing series of experiences to these particular paradigms. Um, what we gain from that, what we lose from that, maybe how that, 
because I think if there's a new age feel to Jung, um, if I can sound a little accusatory for a second here, um, it might come from the idea that, you know, it's almost like a Joseph Campbell. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, Joseph Campbell's influenced by Jung. Oh, very much. Um, yes. Yeah. And, and I have a sort of adverse reaction. I mean, you already know this, but I have a sort of adverse reaction to that. Mm-hmm. So I guess what the calculus I'm doing in my head is, what do we gain from taking that tack? Because we'll move to Lacan and people like that later. For right now, I want to think about like why, why that and how will that you know square up against other modes of psychoanalytic thinking? Right. So I mean, the, the first thing that's important to recognize is that because that there is this collective unconscious in us, um, there are um, certain patterns to that collective unconscious that we have that we like individually have no control over. These recognizable patterns that we can't control that basically happen that happen to us essentially um and they happen as a result of human history is his argument is that basically all the past experiences um and if you want to take maybe more of like a less new agey even maybe like more like materialist approach to this you could say that basically children that, learned ex- like. <laughs> that you know basically children's learned experiences are how they accept these these archetypes okay. so but, you know yes yeah if i could uh, tell me if this is going on a completely wrong track but the way i was understanding the readings about from Jung were i'd come to this with the i thought that the collective unconscious was like some kind of uh spiritual reality that we all tap into or something that's the way i do agey people talk about it but what i was coming to at least interpret it, it meaning is that it's a pre-verbal pre-conceptual fact about and this is where I thought Jung seemed like he might have more scientific basis than Freud, um, that the basis is in the brain, like in the physical brain, which has evolved over time mm-hmm. in humans, you know, at least since we differentiated into the human species over a couple million years. And so it's just a way of talking about the instincts that we have of the proclivity to respond to mother-like experiences in a certain way that's good for survival. Or to respond to snakes in a certain way, you know, uh, animals in the night, water, like you said, um, we've built up these in the same way that lower, lower animals have instinctual responses to types of experiences, but that, and that they're always under the, there's like subconscious forces that are always going to be rising up into our actual experience of life. And, um, that they can be placed onto other things though, than the, maybe the original thing they were meant for, like evolution couldn't construct an urge that only has the mother response to your biological mother. It's going to be a proclivity that can find an outlet in, um, mythological things or stories like the mother of God or communities like the church, you know, we speak of mother church or the earth itself, mother earth, you know, so these become, um, symbols or maybe signs i forget which is the correct the right word to use with young but that the archetype finds an outlet in and so the value of talking about the archetype is that it's just a receptacle for these preconceptual inclinations that we have towards specific um different types of things and if there's any truth to it it's really i think a biological truth that the way the human brain works it's going to respond to certain things in certain ways and that we, that's what we share that gives us the basis for constructing the complexes that are our different cultures is that we all share 
just by nature of our evolutionary history, we share these proclivities to respond to experiences in certain ways that fall that sort into different kind of categories, and those are the archetypes. No, I mean, I, I think that's that's pretty spot on. Um, so I was talking earlier about how basically, you know, that these things bubbling up from the unconscious are kind of shaped into the archetypes. And, you know, so you know, you you know, put it you know a little bit a little bit clearer. But no, I think that's um, that is very spot on um, with what he's trying to get at. And I think he's um, one of his big problems. I think with the with Freud and kind of like that setting of like late nineteenth, early twentieth century um, science was that for the um, the therapeutic process, as far as actually treating patients goes, he thought it was really important to not be a reductivist. So he thought that treating these things as psychic facts was essential. That the, the I mean the reality is is that we experience so because I mean he's basically like an empiricist gone off the rails. <laughs> so he's like you know we experience this archetype of the mother, and he thinks that yeah it has something to do with the way that we evolved and all the past experiences and how that shaped people. And you know he does think that you know you know he does have some interest in like biology. Um, but, you know, he also definitely has a lot of mysticism, too. He was really into alchemy. He was a bit weaselly when you tried to, like, narrow him down into, like, okay, so what's the actual, like, material facts about what you're saying? Um, he would just say, he would just refer to them as psychic realities. And it'd be like, regardless of how it happened, you know, he has his theories about the evolution of the psyche and the human brain. But regardless of how it all happened, the mother archetype is a psychic reality for all of us. No, I, I'm just I'm interested because my I think of him as being reductive by reducing experience to this set series of archetypes. And I guess what comes to mind for me is does this make it too inflexible to address change? So I think one of the biggest problems we have as early 21st century people is that the differences between generations have become increasingly pronounced in a very short period of time. And there's a large body of work on why this is, and there are all sorts of explanations people want to give. I think one of the benefits of a, of a Lacanian system, say, is that it allows you to address why those changes might be so different so rapidly, or might happen so rapidly, over such a short span of time. With Jung, I'm thinking, well, yeah, there might be certain consistencies, but um, the figure of the mother might come under sort of radical reevaluation. If you think about like the ar- the archetype, if I can steal the term of, say, the rebel in the 50s or 60s, where the mother becomes someone to be sort of repudiated. Um, or even, you know, think Kurt Cobain, Nirvana, Gen X. Um, I don't like Nirvana that much. That's fine. But, you know, <laughs> I just I just think Joy Division is better. I think New Order is better. And you can keep that in the recording. Um, but, <laughs> but, but, I mean, seriously, you know, there's clearly, and I mean, I have my own reasons for thinking this is the case, but there there can be quite rapid changes in the way that we receive these things. And my and I understand that from a Jungian perspective, you might be able to say, we have this argument, right? Like, you know, this generation will think of the mother positively or negatively, so on and so forth. But I wonder if sometimes the differences aren't so stark as for the whole way that we talk about the figure to be differentiated. And I worry about also, um, you know, things like, um, just the, the ways, you know, new, new forms of the family where you have more than one, you know, mother or more than one father or see where then, you know, one needs a psychologically responsible way of thinking about how those sorts of relationships will develop. 
and and I guess that's just a concern for me. Feel free to no, and no, I, I think that's fair. I, I think one of so I just kind of had this realization as we were talking. I think maybe the most important difference between Jung's work and Freud and Lacan's work um, is that Jung was fully dedicated to <laughs> practicing. So in the sense of like actual you know research, that wasn't really his goal. Everything he did was de- was directed towards the uh, the ability to effectively make his patients feel psychically whole. And so I, I mean, I, I have no doubt that he would absolutely ditch all of his, all of his theories. He would probably even deny all of his theories to like one patient in particular, if he thought that it was going to help them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so he, I mean, he was a, you know, in philosophy, I find pragmatists to be incredibly frustrating, um, <laughs> but there was, I think something of that, of that in him. Well, it's funny you say, I mean, I think, you know, Lacan and Freud both practiced. Several of Lacan's patients killed themselves. So that's not exactly a point in the Lacanian corner over here. Uh, Very low Yelp reviews. Yeah, he does not have high Yelp reviews. He has high academic Yelp reviews, but very <laughs> low personal Yelp reviews. Um, and I mean, Lacan was certainly something of a narcissist. I would not deny that. And he probably would laugh at you if he said, he said, well, of course, you know, he loved being ironic. Um, but, but I mean, I, I think I can respect that about, because I, I did want to make the point at the beginning here that psychoanalysis, and I hope we'll get into this later, is intended as both a clinical practice and a theory of the way that the human mm-hmm. psyche works and develops. And um, I think for reasons we can get into later, it's very important to think about it as clinical practice. And so if that was Jung's primary way, um, more the power to him, even if I think that uh, Lacan's discourse of the phallus has more to tell us. <laughs> um, I mean that 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 is you know a stark contrast for better or for worse with Jung compared to Freud and Lacan. Um, Jung's work was not nearly phallocentric, as phallocentric as it could have been, to be honest. <laughs> um, well, that, he sometimes I, I read entire articles by him um, where he didn't even bring it up. Well, that's I can't He's tell if that's a terrible thing or yeah, it's, there's nothing Catholic about that. <laughs> um. So, okay, that is actually, I think maybe for um, this first section, that is maybe, if we can touch on one or two um, quick little points, and I think what we can do is then sort of wrap this one up, and then when we move into section two, we can maybe move into, like, their relationship with religion. Um, yeah, sure. This first sort of thing, you know, we're talking about them as kind of like doctors doctors versus scientists. And, you know, you, you had mentioned that, you know, Freud very much wanted to see himself as a scientist, and, like, most of the criticism that... Freud has faced, you know, since his time has been that like his theories have no way of being scientifically substantiated at best. Yeah. Uh, how, how do you think that, you know, for both him and I think Lacan as well also wanted to be seen as a scientist, right? Or at least as a doctor. Or, yeah. As a doc- well, and, and certainly as a logician. Um, yeah, yeah, certainly. Lacan was a big fan of like taking, you know, complex psycho- psychological issues and like turning them into these incredibly complicated logical if I had statements. a chalkboard, I would draw the four discourses for you right now. That I'll use that as like the episode image, so people can just like stare at that while they listen to this and kind of die <laughs> on the inside, um, or come to life. You know, for me, it's come a to li- you know, resurrection. But yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> see that, but see that's what you got to recognize in like you know analytic psychology is that you know what might be good for one patient is not necessarily going to be good for good for another, and how do you adapt your theories to that? Is well, it is sounds like question. they have some neuroses they need to work through. If you understand that there are different types of people. <laughs> anyway. Okay. Okay. But yeah. So, um, but getting back to the question, um, 
So yeah. especially given like that time period, um, you know, the, the determination of like Freud to be seen as a, you know, a doctor and a scientist, um, you know, he definitely distanced himself from, um, from religion. And, you know, modern times you kind of had like the, the new atheist hyper rational, you know, dismissing faith as unscientific. Um, at the same time, in both cases, I think even Lacan acknowledged that psychoanalysis was basically a church. Um, <laughs> that that they set up that the way you know that they had a distinct worldview. They had disciples and young. They even had like their you know their first heretic that they excommunicated. Um, yeah, for sure, for sure. I, so I, how do you think that those two how those two relate? Well, I mean, I think. I don't know how much time you guys have spent around natural scientists recently, but they have a tendency to say very negative things about the social sciences. Yep. I meet very few biologists and chemi chemists. Uh, my roommate is a physicist. I'm sorry. Who have much positive... To, well, it's, you know... My dad's a physicist, so I'm sorry, yeah. I'm very sorry. Yeah, there's, <laughs> there's a lot I can say about that with regard to analysis. Um, but I, I think... How do I say this? I think... From a certain perspective, from the perspective that Freud thought he was adopting, which is to say almost a natural scientific standpoint, any of the human sciences or social sciences look suspect. So there's a sense in which the unverifiability of something like psychoanalysis runs up against a very similar problem that contemporary clinical psychology does. It attempts its own empirical validation, but I mean, there are, there are always statistical problems, there is problems with method, I mean... We are human subjects attempting to enact these things. We're not dealing with, you know, closed natural systems. Um, so that's sort of problem number one, right? Is that if if, we, if someone wants to say that psychoanalysis or Freud or something like that fails with regard to validate its own scientificity, you, you might just as easily say that that is just as impossible for something like contemporary psychology. Um, I think the, the, frankly, the shade, if I can use the parlance of the times here, that uh, psychoanalysis tends to get has more to do with its overt sexualization, which I think we can talk about. I think it has more to do with what people are comfortable or uncomfortable with, as opposed to maybe whether it functions or doesn't function. Because, you know, um, you know, I don't know if you guys have watched a lot of Woody Allen movies, but Woody Allen spends a lot of time in psychoanalysis. And I think there are a lot of people who watch his movies and are like, oh my God, this is a, you know, a wonderful study of how horrifying we as human beings can be. But then they don't want to accept the psychoanalytic framework might have something to do with that. Hmm. Um, and I think that has more to do with our fear of the discourses it uses than of the thing itself. Um, did you did you want to talk about religion and psychoanalysis too as well? I mean, I know. Well, that, I think let's do that for let's do that for part two. I think that that okay. will like that that will take us I think a while. So I think that will make it good. Okay, excellent. Yeah. Um. No, but I do think it's important to think about the scientificity of something like psychoanalysis. As being related to the scientificity of any social of any social science or human science, um, and there are a lot of people who would say we're not even allowed to make that distinction. Um, you know, if you want to take a kind of Kantian framework on this, it's about empirical verifiability. Do we think that this makes sense? And I think I have good reasons for believing that psychoanalysis makes sense. Um, and given the current state of psychology, I think it's time we look for an alternative. Um, you sent a good article around by Simka Fisher about what it's like as a Catholic gender therapy. And um question is, does contemporary clinical therapy relate to how we as Catholics view the world? Does it take original sin seriously? Does it take prayer seriously? Does it take questions of um, wholeness as it's held in tension with the fact that we're always lacking as fallen beings seriously? 
those are questions I think psychoanalysis can address. And so as Catholics, I think it's worth our time. Yeah. Maybe got a little off topic there. But. No, I think that, that, that's, that's a, to me, I think that's a perfect closer for, um, for this week. Mm -hmm. What do you think, Zeb? Yeah, sounds good. Okay. So thank you so much, Chase. Um, we're going to be back with you again next week. Um, although, as you pointed out, Lacan want everyone to know we're going to be back with you in about 30 seconds. Um, we are entirely <laughs> constructing these uh, these two different these two different recordings. You have um, to traverse the fantasy. <laughs> so, all right. Well, y'all you'll all hear from us. You'll all hear from us next week. But you did